It's Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, for a sermon I've entitled, Return to Me. We're going to back up to verse 11, just for some context. It says, The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great. For strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is compassionate, or gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? Now, last Sunday marked the beginning of the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. Unlike Christians who count the years starting from the birth of Jesus, the rabbis start counting from the creation of Adam and Eve. So as they reckon it, it's not the year 2022, but 5,783. The High Holy Days for the Jews began on September 25th with Rosh Hashanah, and they will culminate on October 5th with... uh, um, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. A celebration of that day will close out with these words, Lashana Ha Baha Ba Yerushalem, which means next year in Jerusalem. Now, for 2,000 years, the overwhelming majority of the Jews have not been anywhere near Jerusalem. After the Romans put the, down the Bar Kokhba rebellion in 136 AD, killing half a million of the inhabitants of Judea, Most of the Jews were scattered across the globe with only a very few number uh, remaining in Israel. So the dream that someday they would return, perhaps the next year, the Jews would be back in their ancient homeland. Now as far-fetched as that hope seemed to be, Jews have held on to it. And over the centuries, a few have trickled back into the land. I mean, that's uh, then starting in the 1880s with the rise of the modern Zionist movement. Jews began to emigrate to Palestine in increasing numbers. First under the Turks uh, during the time of the Ottoman Empire, then later under the British, tens of thousands of Jews landed on the shores of Palestine. In 1917, the British government put forward what they called the Balfour uh, Declaration, which declared their support for a Jewish homeland. Well, then after World War II, thousands of Jews who survived the Holocaust emigrated, much to the consternation of the Arabs who were already there living in the land. And that increasing tension between the Jews and the Arabs uh, broke out in a war in 1948 after David Ben-Gurion declared the establishment of the modern state of Israel. Five Arab countries, Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria, attacked the newly formed nation. But they were soundly defeated, much to the surprise not only of the Arabs, but really of the whole world. Well, since that time, another three million Jews have returned to their ancient homeland. Nearly a million of them Russians during the period from 1989 to 2006. For these Jews, these Israeli Jews, it's not next year in Jerusalem because they've already returned. But have they really? Jeremiah 4.1, God speaking to the people, said this, If you will return, O Israel, declares the Lord, then you shall return to me. What good does it do 
if all the Jews of the world return to the promised land if they don't return to the God who promised them the land. And however religious they may be, they cannot be said to have returned to their God until they acknowledge Jesus Christ as his son and their Messiah, who they rejected for 20 centuries. Well, the good news is that someday Israel will indeed recognize Jesus of Nazareth as their long-rejected Messiah. But the bad news is, before that day comes, they're going to go through a horrible period of suffering and persecution at the hands of a future Assyrian king, the one that we know as the Antichrist. Well, all of this and much more is wrapped up in uh, that period of time that the Bible calls the Day of the Lord. Now, we considered the Day of the Lord as we looked at the beginning of chapter 2 last week, but this week I want to focus more closely on verses 12 to 17 of this chapter where the prophet calls on the people to repent of their sins and return to the Lord before this terrible day comes. Well, because it's not only Jews who are sinners who need to repent, but all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, this call to repent and return is one that all of us need to hear this morning. So before we jump into the text, let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father and God, I do pray for grace and mercy as we look at this. Help my voice to um, maintain uh, so I can preach your word and people can be transformed by it. Bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, four things I see in these uh, verses. First of all, the nature of true repentance. Joel speaks of that. That's found in verse 12. The nature of true, true repentance. Secondly, the incentives for true repentance. And that's 13 and 14. Third, the call to true repentance. That's 15 to 17. And finally, the results of true repentance. And that's verse 18. The nature of true repentance. Now, Google search engine has a new tool I just came across. It's called the Google Ngram Viewer. It allows you to punch in any word or phrase, and it will graph out the occurrence of that word in publications over the last five centuries. For instance, if you put in the word zombie, you'll find that it started appearing in books and articles in the 1940s. And though the idea of a reanimated corpse walking around coming out of the graveyard goes back to Haitian folklore, um, it's really only been since the 50s and 60s that it's kind of caught on in the American vocabulary. I mean, fueled by uh, movies like The Night of the Living Dead, kids at that time not only had to worry about the Russians blowing up their cities, they also had to worry about zombies eating their family and friends. Well, I did a search on the word repentance. The high water mark for that word was back in the 1820s. Since that time, the frequency of the use of this word has dropped dramatically, hitting a low mark in the 1980s, though it's come up slightly in the last two decades. Now, do you suppose we stopped using the word repent because Americans don't sin anymore? Since that time, sin has increased, not decreased. It's become archaic and obsolete to American modern ears because we don't believe in sin, as we once did. I mean, talk about repentance may have gone out of style, but the need for repentance is as great or greater than it ever has been. But what does it mean to repent? Well, the Greek word that's used in the New Testament for repentance is metanoia. It comes from two uh, parts of the word. Meta, which means change, like in metamorphosis, to change the form of something. And noia, which comes from the word nous, which means mind. So metanoia literally means to change your mind. And so in the Bible, to repent means to change your mind about God, about yourself, and about your sin. In Hebrew, the word translated as repent is teshuva which literally means to return or to turn back. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Now, it might be a dark and destructive way, or it might be a pleasant and successful way. 
But the problem is it's our way that we turn to rather than God's. And that's why the Bible says in Romans 3, 10 to 12, there's none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's no one who does good, not even one. If God is holy and just as the Bible declares him to be, and if man is sinful and wicked, as the Bible says is so, it's not surprising that a terrible end times judgment might come upon mankind. But what is shocking, wonderfully shocking, is that even when Israel sinks to its lowest point spiritually, God, in his grace, holds out his hand to his people, saying, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, and weeping, and mourning. Now many in Florida were warned to evacuate before the hurricane hit. Some ignored the call and decided to riot out. One man I heard when interviewed said that was the worst decision of my life. Many would think, well, they had been warned. If they perish, it's their own fault. That's true. But God is more like the people from FEMA coming around in the boats willing to rescue those who initially ignored the warnings. And even at this future time during the Great Tribulation where Israel is engaged in its greatest spiritual apostasy by making a covenant with the Antichrist, God will still be calling on them to repent. In effect, he's repeating the words that were spoken in Ezekiel 33, 11, where he said this, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? The command to repent is one that's not only given to Israel, but it's given to every nation and to all people. The Apostle Paul, preaching to the philosophers in Athens after he rebuked them for their crass idolatry, said this, Therefore, having overlooked the time of ignorance, God is now declaring to men everywhere that they should repent, because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world with righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Acts 17 30 to 31. Well, what's involved in repentance? What's the difference between repentance and mere remorse? Well, the theologians say that repentance contains three elements. First of all, it involves confession of sin. Confession of sin. Now, many churches have in part of their service uh, a corporate confession that we are sinners. But it's not enough just to see ourselves as sinners in some vague, generic way. Yeah, 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 I'm, I'm a sinner and all that. We have to confess our specific sins in violations of God's commandments. Charles Spurgeon was a well-known pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London in the late 1800s. He was a powerful preacher. And one time a woman who was moved by one of his sermons came to him because she wanted to confess her sins. Spurgeon had some doubts knowing this woman that she was sincere. And so he said to her, well, if you're a sinner, then you've broken God's commandments. Maybe we should go through them and you can confess the ones that you've broken. Have you broken the first commandment? By worshiping other gods? Oh no, not at all, she said. Well, how about the one that says, Thou shalt not make any graven images? Did you ever break that one? Oh, never, never, never. Have you ever taken God's name in vain? She was very particular about that one. She had never taken God's name in vain. Did she always honor her father and mother, to the best of her knowledge? Yes. Spurgeon took her through all the commandments, and as clear as she remembers, she would not have violated any of them. Well, then why does she need to repent? Of course, if she had done a little bit of soul-searching, she would have realized that she had violated all these commandments, and added to that, she was self-righteous, 
which would keep her out of heaven. Well, the second thing that it involves, though, is contrition. That's another word that's declined in usage over years. It means to have sorrow when we think about our sins. David, after committing adultery with Bathsheba and setting up the killing of her husband, when he finally acknowledged his sin, he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. And reflecting on the greatness of his sin, he said this in Psalm 51, 16-17, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. In other words, God, if I could just take care of my sin with killing a lamb, I would do so. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. That's why Joel is telling the people here that you need to rend your heart and not your garments. For the Jews to tear your clothes is a sign of sorrow and mourning. But what God wants from us is broken hearts when we think about our sins. I mean, you ever had anyone hurt you in a very deep way? And when you confronted with them, they didn't apologize? They didn't seem genuinely sorry? They just shrugged it off and said, get over it? Doesn't that make it even worse? How can we say that we're repentant of our sins if we don't feel some sense of shame about the things that we've done? I worked with a woman, and uh, she was a professed Christian, came to my Bible studies for a while. But I noticed that whenever she talked about her past life and the sins in them, it was always with a sense of glee and delight, like as if those were the good old days. Now Paul, in asking the Christians in Rome to reflect on their past life, said this. He said, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things was death. Romans 6, 21. And you know, there is a difference between repentance and remorse. Judas felt remorse for having betrayed Jesus. I mean, he returned the money to the priest and he said, I betrayed innocent blood. He felt so remorseful that he went out and hung himself, but he never truly repented of his sin. Peter, on the other hand, denied Christ three times that he even knew him. But when he heard the rooster crow and he saw Jesus look over at him, he remembered Jesus' words and were told that he went out and he wept bitterly. Well, the third thing that's required is that it requires a change of direction. Why do you drive down the, or when you drive down the freeway, you'll find those uh, short passageways between the freeway going one direction and the other? And there's always a sign over it that says, no U-turns. Well, what's prohibited on the freeway is absolutely required on the path of life. The band ACDC sang a song where they screamed, I'm on the highway to hell. Well, that was true not only of them, but it's true of each one of us if we do not repent and make a spiritual U-turn. That's why the prophet Joel was warning the nation of Israel to do just that. And that's what God is calling us to do today. Not only do we need to be sorry for our sins, but we need to be sorry enough to want to stop. That brings us to our second point, though, the incentives for true repentance. Now, the Cambridge Dictionary defines incentive as something that encourages a person to do something. Companies often offer incentives when they sell products, don't they? Buy one, get one free. Or call now and we'll throw in this six-piece steak knife set along with the food processor. Now, the prophet holds out the greatest possible incentive to the people in his plea to return to God. The fact that God will take him back and call off his planned judgment. He says, now return to the Lord, your God, for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. 
Jesus told that parable that conveyed that same truth that Joel is setting forth here. It's about a young man who was chafing under his father's authority. He wanted to go out and experience all the thrills and pleasures that the world had to offer. So he asked his dad to give him his share of inheritance. Reluctantly, the father did so, and the young man headed down the road, off to enjoy the good life. Wine, women, and song, or as we would say now, drugs, sex, and rock and roll. There's a party going on right now. A celebration to last throughout the years. So bring your good times and your laughter too. We're going to celebrate your party with you. And I'll tell you what, if you provide free booze, you will always have people willing to celebrate good times with you. But what happens when the good times turn bad? The party ends. That's what happened to the young man in the story that Jesus told. It says, now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, and he sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. While standing knee-deep in pig poo, he started to think seriously and do a little soul-searching. It says, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here of hunger. I'll get up, I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Now that's true repentance. He was hoping to be taken on just as a worker because he knew he had disgraced himself as a son. But listen to the next part of the story. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandal on his feet (coughs) and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead but now he's come to life. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. Now return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Look, if you're sitting here today or if you're listening over the internet to this sermon and you know that you're not saved, but rather you've squandered your life up to this point in the worthless pleasures of sin, I want to invite you today to come home. Come home to your Creator. Come home to your God. God has made a way for you to get back home. It's through the death of His Son on the cross as a payment for sins so that your sin debt could be paid off and you'd be reconciled with your Creator. And though you've resisted up to this point and spurned His offer of forgiveness, He's still willing to receive you if you would turn today. The nation of Israel has not done that yet. Instead, they've rejected their Messiah for 2,000 years. Because of that, they'll face the greatest suffering yet in the future. But even at that time, God will be offering to forgive their sins if they would but return to Him. That's the best incentive anyone could have. Joel was holding out the hope to his people when he said, Who knows whether he will not relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering from the Lord your God. That brings us to the third point, though, the call to true repentance. Things aren't going as planned for Vladimir Putin, uh, for the Russian forces in Ukraine. 
He's called up another 300,000 reservists to go and fight the battle. Many Russian men are fleeing the country to neighboring countries, hoping to avoid being conscripted. It's not that they're cowards, it's just that they don't want to go off and risk dying in a war that they don't support. Well, Joel, the prophet Joel, was sending out a call to conscript people, not to join a battle, but to join in prayer and to beg God to show mercy to the nation and rescue them from the impending doom. Look what he says in 15. He says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of, her, out of his cha- room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Brother loves travel and salvation show. Pack up the babies and grab the old ladies and everyone goes because everyone knows brother loves show. Some of you got that. But if there's going to be a revival, it's going to have to be the clergy that lead the way. That's why Joel says in verse 17, let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not let your inheritance become a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should the, uh, among the peoples they say, where is their God? And I have to tell you, genuine revivals are actually quite rare in history. One that did take place occurred in the Hebride Islands uh, off the northwest coast of Scotland. It began in 1949, shortly after World War II. One of the pastors in the area sent out a letter to the churches uh, bemoaning the low state of religion on the island. Most of the people were going to church infrequently. The young people hardly ever went. The pastor pleaded with the area churches to, quote, take these matters to heart and to make a serious inquiry what must be the end if there is no repentance. We call upon every individual as before God to examine his or her life in light of the responsibility which attends to all of us and that happily, in divine mercy, we may be visited with a spirit of repentance and turn again to the Lord whom we have so grieved. Now, according to Duncan Campbell, a pastor who lived and witnessed these events, he said this, Two people who did, uh, who did take to heart uh, this uh, admonition were two sisters, one 82 years old and one 84, and she was blind. These two women developed a great heart for the concern for God and uh, to do something in the parish and give themselves to waiting upon God in their little cottage. One night, God gave one of the sisters a vision in which she saw the church is crowded with young people and she told her sister, I believe revival's coming to our parish. She conveyed the dream to her pastor. He responded by asking, what do you think we should do? And she said, give yourself to prayer. Give yourself to waiting upon God. Get the elders and the deacons together and spend at least two nights a week waiting upon God in prayer. If you'll do this uh, at at your end of the parish, my sister and I will do this at our end of the parish from 10 o'clock at night until 2 or 3 in the morning every night. So they started to pray earnestly. The two sisters in their home, the pastors and the deacons, in a barn. One night when they were praying, a young deacon got up during the meeting, and he read Psalm 24 that says this, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, closing his Bible, he addressed the church leaders. He said this, you know, it seems like so much humbug. To be waiting and wait as we are, and to be praying as we are, when we ourselves are not rightly related to God. Then he lifted up his hands towards the heavens and he prayed. He said, Oh God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? So then he went to his knees and he fell into a trance. Well, Duncan Campbell 
continues by saying this. Now don't ask me to explain the physical manifestation of this moment because I can't. This I do know though. Something happened in that barn at that moment in that young deacon. There was a power loose that shook the heavens and an awareness of God that gripped those gathered together. At the first meeting they had after this, the church was packed. Some young people had left a local dance to come hear the word of God. But according to Campbell, the real breakthrough didn't come until the second meeting. At that time, there were 600 people who showed up to hear the word of God. Some from a, in a bus from 60 miles away. Even as they got off the bus, before they heard any preaching, they started to weep. The meeting lasted for several hours, and a great number of the young people gave their lives to the Lord that night. It began to spread. At another meeting, the reception was kind of cool, and uh, uh, Duncan thought that most of the people really came just out of curiosity, but with no intention of turning from their sins. And at that meeting, Pastor Campbell asked a young boy named Donald to pray. Now, this teen had only been saved for just a short time, a few months, and so he wasn't eloquent in his prayers, but it was heartfelt. He said this, I seem to be gazing into an open door, and I see the Lamb in the midst of the throne with the keys of death and hell at his waist. Then he stopped and just began to sob. And after he composed himself, he lifted his eyes towards heaven, he raised his hand, and he said, God... There's power there. Let it loose. And at that moment, the power of God fell upon the congregation. On one side of the room, the people threw up their heads and put their heads back and uh, kept them in that position. On the other side, people were slumped over, crying out to God for mercy. In a village five miles away, the power of God swept through the town, so they said there was hardly a house in that village where someone was not saved that very night. According to an article I read about this in Christianity Today, quote, just as the meeting was closing, someone hurried up to the pastor, very excited. Come with me. There's a crowd of people outside the police station, and they're weeping in an awful distress. We don't know what's wrong with them, but they're calling for someone to come and pray with them. Describing what he saw at the police station... A minister said this, I saw a sight I never thought was possible. Something I shall never forget. Under the starlit sky, men and women were kneeling everywhere by the roadside, outside the cottages, even behind peat stacks, crying for God to have mercy upon them. Thousands and thousands of people were saved in that three-year period. That's what we need in our churches. That's what we need in our town. That's what we need in our state. And that's what we need in our country. But if it ever comes, it'll be because God's people get together and cry out, Spare your people, O Lord. That brings us to our last point, the results of true repentance. I take this just from verse 18. I mean, what would happen, what will happen when Israel finally repents? We're going to see that next week as we look further into the chapter. What would happen if America were to truly repent? Well, according to verse 18, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. In 2 Chronicles 7, 13-14, God says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. Folks, listen carefully. Our land is sick. It is very sick. I saw one just the other day, National Public Radio. They had an article with a woman, a lesbian woman. But she's more than just a lesbian woman. She's in love with two women. 
The three of them are living as a thruple. And she said, we need to have people accept the way we are and who we are. I've been warning some of you for years that the sexual revolution has no bottom. All of it is ultimately a mockery and a despising of God's created order. And if it doesn't change, unless God plans on apologizing to Sodom and Gomorrah, he's going to destroy us. Now, if you're older, you might be thinking, well, I'll be gone by now or that time. You have grandchildren? Do you have great-grandchildren? The Bible says a godly man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Wicked people live, leave an inheritance to their children's children. Debt and a debauched society. But it's going to begin in the churches. If it begins, it'll be in our hearts. It'll be because we repent of our own sins and call on God to spare our land. Israel needs to return to the Lord. America needs to return to the Lord. I need to return to the Lord. And you need to return to the Lord. God has one message for all of us. Return to me. Return to me. Next week we'll see the blessings that God has in store for the nation of Israel when she finally returns to the Lord. That day is yet in the future. We pray not only for that nation, we pray for our nation, that God would send us revival. Why don't we pray now? Father and God, and people shrug their shoulders. But there's nobody in the Ukraine who's shrugging their shoulders. Their land has been destroyed. They've been dispossessed. Their brothers and their fathers have died, and they're facing a terrible future. I would guess that those people are open to the gospel message in a way that others aren't. I think C.S. Lewis was right, Lord, when he said that pain is your megaphone to wake up a deaf world. I pray that you do whatever is necessary to cause us to wake up. Forgive us for our sins, Lord. Forgive us for our indifference. We pray, Father, that you'd help us to shine brightly, but always that repentance starts in our own hearts and in our own lives. So bless us now. We thank you for these things, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.